The drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. What a great lyric. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Because all that I can do. That's beautiful. It's true and it's beautiful. Thanks be to God for such music. Today we are paying attention to uh, one of the beautiful, one of the most beautiful themes in all the Bible, the tree of life. When I was a boy, I wished that I could have a job in which I would just climb trees. (laughs) If there was any tree out there, I wanted to climb it and be near the very top, swaying in the wind. If I could have a job in which I wouldn't cut the trees down. Okay, lumberjacks climb trees, but they cut them down. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Trees are these wonderful things. And the Bible has stories of wonderful trees. So let us hear from uh, three of such stories. I'm adding one text to our readings. Uh, So we're starting with Genesis 2, verse 4. Skipping a bit to Genesis 3. We're going to add Galatians 3. It's not printed in the bulletin. We're going to add Galatians 3, verses uh, 10 through 14, which speaks of another tree story. And then we're going to go to the book of Revelation and read what's um, printed there uh, for the bulletin. So let's pay close attention then to uh, the Word of God in three stories of wonderful trees. Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is pure. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then skipping down to chapter 3, verse 22. After a dire deed of, yes, violating God's express command. Verse 22. Uh, The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. And now to the text that's not printed in your bulletin, Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, one of Paul's letters where a tree likewise appears, but now in metaphorical form, a tree called the cross, a cross made of wood, called here a tree. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. And the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And now to the book of Revelation, our main text for the day. First, the line from Revelation 2, verse 7, and then uh, the last page of the book. Verses 8 through 17. Revelation 2 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. And now, Revelation 22, verse 8 and following. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. 
So today's story is about trees. And uh, a particular tree uh, in Revelation 2 and 22, a tree in the most wondrous garden that you can possibly imagine. In fact, far beyond what you can imagine is the wonder of that garden. The first garden was planted by God in an age of innocence. We read of it in Genesis 2. The last garden will be planted by God in an age of consummation. The first city was built by Cain, Genesis 4, in an act of rebellion. The last city will be built by God in the fact of reconciliation. The first Adam was created by God to share in the life of God. The last Adam was sent by God to grant that life for us. The question for today, then, is this. How do we gain the privilege of sharing in the life of God? How do we gain the privilege of sharing in the life of God? Because this tree of life is really that by symbol. A kind of sacrament, if you will. A sacramental sign of the life of God, the life of Jesus Christ, the life that Jesus offers, which is nothing less than himself. Revelation 22, verse 14, answers that question. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The next verse is terrifying to those who are outside of this faith, to those who refuse to wash their robes. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The Bible is a story of two different ways of life, isn't it? And here they are near the, near the very last words of the Bible, compressed into two sentences, two astonishing contrasts. One, the life of God, shared by us, that is, by those who wash their robes. And then, those who are bereft of that life excluded from all blessedness except existence itself. And so, in today's readings, we have three stories of trees. Genesis 2 and 3, the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And there we see that there are actually two trees. A tree of testing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a tree of confirmation, the tree of life. A lot of life is like that, isn't it? Testing and confirmation for those who pass the test. A graduation diploma is something like a confirmation after lots of tests. Eh? Those who graduated from schools, okay, high schools, colleges, universities. All right, lots of testing. And then a graduation, a diploma, a confirmation of achievement. Eden is something like that. It is a probation. It is a temporary testing. And uh, our race fails the test. And the diploma is not given. And the confirmation withheld. And withheld for excellent reasons in the justice and wisdom of God. But notice the second story of our trees. It's Galatians 3 now. 
And there Paul is focusing upon the very heart of the blessed gospel of redemption, in which we find not merely Jesus, although that's, of course, well, how can I say merely Jesus? Pardon the expression. Okay, we find not only Jesus, but Jesus upon his cross. And Paul then quotes Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 which speaks about the proper manner of execution for capital crime. Okay, what do you do with such a person? Well, maybe you might stone them to death. All right, that's one of the sentences, especially for those of the most vile crimes, lest you touch their bodies and be defiled by that in the ritual purity laws of ancient Israel. But then you expose their body on a tree. All right, now the pagans would do this, and they would leave the body there for weeks, months, years. And all the fleshy matters picked away by the crows and the birds of carrion and the vermin. And then the bones fall bit by bit to the foot of the tree. And this is how the pagans dealt with the worst of their criminals. In Deuteronomy 21, that's prohibited. Because even the criminal is the image of God, and you do not desecrate the image of God, even for the worst such person. And so what does the law of Moses say? That you may expose a person only until the end of the day of light. And before the sun goes down, they must be properly buried. Even the body of the most vile is treated with at least that respect. Because all human beings are the image of God. To do otherwise, Moses says, well, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Don't do it, is what the law of Moses says. Paul quotes that about the Christ, that he is exposed on a tree. It's, of course, a metaphorical tree, the cross Roman wood, wood from some local hill in Jerusalem. There was no doubt a permanent stake there on that execution site outside the western gate of Roman Jerusalem. Christ carries the crossbeam, is lowered then by a rope crane onto the top of the vertical stake. There's a hole in the beam and uh, dropped down onto the stake in utter agony. And Paul's interpretation is this, that in that moment of crucifixion, those hours on the cross, Jesus experiences the curse of God. And why does he experience the curse of God? He experiences it for us. That Christ became a curse for us. That we might be redeemed. And that the blessing of Abraham, which sounds like it's only Israelite, might come to the Gentiles as well. In fact, to all the world. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, ordinarily, the word for tree in Greek is dendros. And you can remember that word because of the wonderfully magical word rhododendron. You know that, that word? Rhodod How many have rhododendrons in your yard? How many have planted or tended or at least admired rhododendrons? In Greek, rose tree. Rhodon dendros. Dendros tree. A tree of roses. A rhododendron. Dendros, the usual word for a living tree. Here, Paul's word is zulos, which is dead wood. Dead wood. And out of dead wood, 
comes everlasting life. It's gorgeous. It's ironic reversal. And so in Revelation 22, what do we read? Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And here the word for tree is zulos, dead wood. It seems to be the reference back to the cross of Jesus. And out of that cross of dead wood comes everlasting life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The third story of the tree, of course, is Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And in Revelation 22, what do we see? We see the new Jerusalem, which has come out of, uh, out of heaven from God and descended to the earth making the wonderfully beautiful point that now the boundary line between heaven and earth becomes irrelevant. At best, a dotted line. And it's not the end of the earth, the late great planet earth. Oh, no, 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 no. It's the restoration, the glorification, the, the, the vast promotion of the universe to become the pure and holy temple of God. God doesn't throw away his good creation. He saves it. Hallelujah. And as uh, that great theologian, uh, whose name you may not know, but I'll say it here, Gerhardus Voss. Okay, we, but Peter and I know that name. We've read that fellow. Uh, Voss was the father of my first professor of Bible. Gerhardus Voss taught at Geneva. His father, Gerhardus Voss, taught at Princeton before Princeton went bad. <laughs> Retired in 1930. Okay, so Gerhardus Voss. Here's what he says in a wonderful sermon preached 100 years ago in Princeton Chapel. That what is God doing in this tree of life? Quote, it is not mere restoration of what existed before, but the occasion of bringing in something entirely new and unexperienced in the past. That is, we don't just go back to Eden and to that time of innocence and testing. That would be like going back to first grade and having uh, you know, vocabulary quizzes. It's not a time of testing again. And it's not a time of the undeveloped innocence of the ancient paradise of God. It's not merely a garden. It's the garden city. It's the consummation of the world. It's the goal of history. And history reaches its proper goal despite sin and death and devil. And the devil does not win. And as Voss says again from that sermon called The Wonderful Tree, preached a hundred years ago, Quote, as the second Adam is greater than the first, the paradise of the future is fairer than that of the past. The word Eden means delight. Delight. The best man at my wedding, when he got married a little bit later, uh, their first child, he named her Eden. Delight. Delight. Eden means delight. And in translations, we sometimes call it paradise. An ancient Persian word for one of the royal parks. Paradise. And uh, the Bible here speaks of the paradise of God. That is God's own royal park. And uh, in chapter 2 of Revelation, the paradise of God. Okay, you'll have the right to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The best of all royal parks in all the universe beyond all that we can imagine. In the most intense beauty and glory of our best thoughts and beyond. The second Adam is greater than the first, says Voss. The paradise of the future is fairer than that of the past. Hallelujah. 
Now, the Bible did not invent the idea of the tree of life. We have it predicted lots of times in the art of the ancient Near East. In my first year of doctoral studies at uh, Duke, uh, they threw me in an archaeology class, which was wonderful and strange and new, and I was studying what was called cylinder seals. Now, what in the world is a cylinder seal? Take a bit of semi-precious stone about yay big, round it into what looks like a spool, like a spool of thread, drill a hole through it, and then um, carve into its perimeter uh, images that are unique to you. And maybe your name in Akkadian script, you know, cuneiform, that wedge stuff uh, that the ancient Babylonians used. And uh, the images on those seals then with their inscriptions, that was your credit card. It used to be, you know, back in the 70s, to take your credit card and they would actually roll on it. And you'd get a carbon copy, and that was your transaction record from your from your um, raised, embossed uh, credit card. They don't do that anymore. Okay, it's readers and scanners and this and that, and it's better. But in 3000 BC, 2000 BC, even the story of um, Judah and Tamar, uh, you used the cylinder seal and rolled it over the wet clay. And uh, mark in the clay your transaction, and that's your signature. I own one of those things in my office from 1800 BC, the oldest man-made object in Beaver County. I'll bet. And uh, you know that's the credit card, your signature. And often on the images of those, you would have some beast on one side, some mythical beast, and some mythical beast on the other side facing each other, and in the middle, a tree, a beautiful tree representing the power of life. The power of life. The tree of life is a frequent figure in ancient Near Eastern literature long before Moses ever picked up a pen. And often such a tree or plant in those ancient uh, and somewhat paganized stories uh, grants a gift of life. But in the stories, the hero of the story never quite gets the gift. In one such story, Gilgamesh tries to find the plant that gives everlasting life, but a snake devours it before he can get to it. (laughs) Or the gods snatch it away in another such story. Uh, In Genesis and in Revelation, what happens? In Genesis, it's offered. Yeah, the tree of life is offered. But offered upon the condition of the proper fulfilling of the probation. A probation is a temporary test. And it was not the will of the Lord to test our race forever. Okay, let's have a million years for Adam and Eve in their, in their everlasting, deathless condition. Let's test them every day until at last they fall. No, that's not it at all. Probation is necessarily a temporary state. And if you're in college or high school, you want to pass the test and graduate, right? Probation offers a promotion at the end. A criminal who comes out of jail on probation fulfills conditions and then is restored to a higher level of freedom. Probations are necessarily temporary. And so the Garden of Eden is a probation. And if we had passed the test, we, speaking of the race, a race that is focused in Adam in that time, if we had passed the test, if Adam had passed the test, we would have been admitted to the glory of the tree of life. And in the last lines of Genesis 2, the Lord, the Lord speaks of the horrible thought that man now in his fallen, estranged, and unreconciled condition, if he might stretch out his hand now and, and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
The Hebrew syntax there is rather broken at the end. We don't actually complete the sentence. Certain translations do complete the sentence. The one I read completes the sentence. But in Hebrew, the sentence is broken off at that point. Uh, Now, lest he stretch forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, and God stops the sentence there. Because the prospect of man, the human race, living forever without God is too horrible to contemplate. That, in fact, would be hell. The tree of life is offered but not yet given because the conditions for its gift are not yet met. How shall it be met? How shall the gift be given? Well, Galatians 3 gives us the major story in very brief form. What's the focus of the life of Jesus? The Son of Man, Jesus says, did not come to be served. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the key verse of all the Gospel of Mark, the scholars tells us, tell us. That's, that's the single sentence that explains the whole narrative of Mark's Gospel. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how does he serve? And to give his life as a ransom for many. And when St. Paul tells that story in other form, it's that tree that is the curse. And Christ becomes a curse for us so that the blessedness offered to Abraham might come, okay, not only to Jews who repent and believe, but also to, to Gentiles. In Psalm 1, uh, the righteous person uh, is said to be like a tree. We've sung that psalm a couple of times in the last year or two that I've been coming here. And perhaps you've sung it in the past, too, because it's in your hymnal. And uh, what is this righteous person uh, compared to? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Notice the word planted. It's not a wild tree. It's a cultivated tree. It's not a tree in the forest. It's a fruit tree. And the text in the four-line poem there says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. What tree has leaves that don't wither? Even pine needles turn brown and fall to the ground. The needles are leaves for the pines. In the Near East, those palm trees, you walk a a palm grove, and you're walking upon inches and inches, or maybe a couple of feet, of brown, rotting palm fronds. And uh, the, pro- the fronds, fronds on the tree, most of them are green, but some turn brown and fall. That symbol in Psalm 1 is a miraculous tree, a supernatural tree, a tree of life, if you will. And the one who lives by the will of God and the word of God and the mission of Jesus, the cross of Christ, okay, he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit of the season, and its leaf does not wither. That's a supernatural tree. And so we are offered this life, this life that never ends. We're offered it. In Proverbs 3, we have this wonderful line, wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who embrace her will be blessed. And here the metaphor is that she's the lovely woman. And fellows, you, you, you embrace your wife. The, the tree is like a wife. 
and you embrace the wife, and you live in fidelity to that lovely woman called wisdom. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who embrace her will be blessed. That is, if you love wisdom, the wisdom of God, if you embrace it the way you embrace your beloved, your life will show bounty and blessedness from God, who is wisdom itself. Proverbs 11.30, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Proverbs 13, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15.4 And so in Genesis and Revelation, our bookends of the Bible, we read not, uh, uh, not merely of a tree of life, that's the one in, in Proverbs and in the Psalm, we read of the tree of life. Now skeptics read those texts and say, okay, magic, magical trees. The Bible has magical trees. No, 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 no. There's no magic. Magic doesn't exist. There is the blessedness of God. That's what exists. The trees are ministries of the will of God and of the goodness of God. And it is nothing less than the ministry that grants the life of God to the one who eats of it. That is, it is a sacramental sign of no one less than Jesus Christ. Sacraments, as Presbyterians ought to know... (laughs) are signs and seals of uh, the covenants, the promises of God. Eden had two such sacraments, such sacrament of testing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a sacrament of confirmation, the tree of life. These are not magical whatsoever. Magic means that you have some degree of control over the powers that are greater than you. No, 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 no. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil tests one thing only. Will the human race love God first? That's it. That's not magic. That's moral. Will the human race love God first? That's the question in the first tree. And therefore the prohibition against eating its fruit is a moral test. It is a test of the love of God. Obey the prohibition. Abstain from the forbidden fruit. Love God more than yourself. And you are admitted to the second tree, which likewise is not magic, but is the gift of the life of God. Love yourself over God. Break the prohibition. Eat the fruit. And enter into death. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, adulterers, murderers, all those who love and practice deceit. The moral test is the issue, and the confirmation of a moral life. Should Adam, our first father, pass the test, he will pass from the goodness of innocence into a greater goodness the goodness of a tested experience. Innocence is good, but tested moral experience is far better. And Adam is to enter into the state of an experienced moral life through testing. He went to drive in the state of Pennsylvania, passed the test. 
right? I failed it once. I passed it the second. No, I failed it twice. Okay. Yes, I failed it twice. All right. But I've not had, okay, I've not had an accident in 42 years. I hope I don't have one on my way home. (laughs) All right. Pass the test and be promoted to an incorruptible glory. That's what's at work in Genesis 2 and 3. Because you'll be like God, truly knowing good, and knowing evil by hating it. You will have rejected it. And you will know evil the way God knows evil, by hating it. And you will know good the way God knows it, by loving it. Pass the test, and that becomes your moral character. So what happens now after the fall? When that first opportunity is squandered by our race in its first father, how do we gain the privilege of sharing in the life of God? Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. How are sinners to be washed? Well, the answer lies in that other tree, that dead wood tree, that zulos, that cross of Jesus, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by hanging on that dead Roman wood for us. And as he hangs there, exposed to the curses of the crowd, And yes, even the curse of God the Father, because he bears our sins, sins which God the Father hates. There in those hours on the cross, he experiences nothing less than hell, which is the wrath of the Father against sin. Hence the cry of dereliction, as they call it, Eli, Eli, Lama Zabakdani, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only sentence of the Old Testament quoted in Hebrew in the New. Mark 15, Matthew 26. This is the only sentence quoted in the New Testament from the Hebrew Bible in its original language. All of the quotations from the Old and the New are in Greek. Why this one alone, in that Semitic language, slightly Aramaicized, but Semitic, basically Hebrew, why, why, why? The gospel writers want us to focus upon the fact that in these moments on the cross, Jesus, by his own will, suffers the full brunt of the rage of the Father against your sin and mine. Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Lama, why? Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? And we're pointed back to Psalm 22, verse 1, from which that sentence is taken, which is first a psalm of the righteous sufferer. And then in the second half is the psalm of the victory of the kingdom of God within the world. And the last line of the psalm is this, that the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. His kingdom has come. The Lord has done it. How do we wash our robes to say to, to enter then into the right to the tree of life and into the city? It can only happen by the curse of that cross in which sin is atoned for. 
And it can only happen by a second deed called faith. That is not trusting your own works, which are always flawed. Even your best, your highest moment, even when you're perhaps on your knees before God in prayer and weeping in sheer joy for the goodness of God, even in that moment you fall short. Some moment of pride, oh, how well I'm doing, God. What a, what a devout person I am. You know, pride erodes the goodness of it. And there's no moment in our life, even our best moments when we are not eroded, at least to some degree, by that self-idolatry of me, me, me. Why then faith? Because faith, even imperfect faith, even faith so small as a grain of mustard seed, moves mountains. And what mountain does it move? Well, it doesn't matter to move these. It matters to move a person from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. From the depths of hell to the heights of heaven, that's the mountain in view. Even faith so small as a grain of mustard seed moves us from hell to heaven. That's far better than moving granite (laughs) and sandstone. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But the accompaniment of faith is always there as well. Repentance. It's impossible to believe truly in this Jesus without that faith reorienting your life, your loves, reordering them in the right way, that is to love God first, to love neighbor as much as self, and sometimes more, and to love yourself third or last on the list. And so we call that repentance. And Jesus speaks persistently of faith and repentance. From the first words of the gospel preaching in Matthew and Mark and Luke, To the last words of the gospel preaching, faith and repentance are the highlights of Jesus in our response. And notice then that in faith, what happens? We are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Our own robes, if you will, are are filthy. Uh, Like in Zechariah 3, the high priest there presented in, in, in robes covered with dung, says the Hebrew text. And heaven reclothes him with the pure and white linen of a, of a fine high priest and, and accepts him then as the, as the true priest of God's people back in 519 B.C. when the second temple is being built. We are reclothed by Christ when we trust in him. We wear the, the robe of righteousness which he himself wove for us by his own virtue. That's what we call justification by faith. We wear the righteous robe. In the Gospels, uh, parables, we read uh, people invited to the wedding supper, and uh, one man arrives in filthy clothes. Cast him out, says the master of the banquet. Clothes have been provided. He didn't, he didn't wash. He didn't redress. He didn't, he didn't take the gift. The wedding's supposed to be special. Yeah, come in the right robes. When my niece got married, we all had to, I had to wear a tuxedo. I wasn't even in the wedding party. He had, he had to have formal dress. It was in a cathedral. A bishop married. The, oh, my. <laughs> it was terrifying. All right. we're, all in, we're all in tuxedo. All the guys. Okay, gowns and tuxedos for everyone there. It was amazing. Uh, okay, you have to wear the right clothes. And how do you get the right clothes? You get them by faith in Jesus. But that word washing, Blessed are those who wash their robes. That word washing also indicates a second 
deed. Because in faith, what do we do? We clean up our act. Don't we? It's impossible to trust this Jesus without changing life toward the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied, says the fourth beatitude. And what happens next in the beatitudes? Blessed are uh, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. And from that transformation of being satisfied with the righteousness of God, we then become merciful and peaceful and pure. 1 John tells us this in chapter 3, quote, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That is, if your hope is in Jesus, what will you do in daily life? You will love him. And you will love your neighbor. And you will change the way you live to conform to the kingdom of heaven. It will, of course, be faulty. Everything we do is faulty. But Christ strengthens us more and more. And it's the peculiar ministry of the Holy Spirit to press that virtue more keenly as the years of life go on in what St. Paul in Galatians 5 will call the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so by that dead wood of the cross, and by faith in the one crucified on that cross, and repentance, which is the constant companion of true faith, we wash our robes, and receive the fruit of the tree of life. As the second Adam is greater than the first, the paradise of the future is fairer than that of the past. Voss goes on to say, this is the supreme feast and Sabbath of the soul. A beautiful line. The supreme feast and Sabbath of the soul. For it is not literally a tree, is it? And it's not literally a piece of fruit, is it? What is it instead? It is nothing less than Jesus and his life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, the life. We thank you who said, no one comes to the Father but by me. So bless, Lord, everyone in this place and everyone in the sound of this voice, whether online or by recording or in this present room. We pray, Lord, that we will all receive that gift of life by that wood of the cross, by the one who was crucified for us, by the one who bore the curse. And we pray, Lord, that we may then rejoice in the everlastingness of that supreme feast and Sabbath of the soul that the tree of life represents to us in these stories of three trees. And we ask these things because of Jesus, who came that these things might indeed happen, and that these might be the reigning powers in our lives, 
and that we might glorify God not only now, but in all the everlasting ages that are yet to come in the paradise of God. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.